Welcome to Picked Voices, the interview series conducted by the faculty of the Paris Institute for Critical Thinking with notable members of the broader Picked community. Our goal is to present our community with a variety of voices across the spectrum of the humanities and critical thinking. My name is Christophe Van Houten, and today I am joined by Philip Alcabez, Professor of Community Health at Hunter College, the City University of New York. And considering what we will talk about, I think it might be helpful to add that, Philip, you earned a PhD in infectious disease epidemiology from the Johns Hopkins School of Hygiene and Public Health. So hello, Philip, and welcome. Hello, I'm very happy to be here. Uh, thank you for being with us. Now, in a book that you published in 2009, entitled Dread, how fear and fantasy have fueled epidemics from the Black Death to the avian flu, and it was coincidentally published just a couple of months before the outbreak of this swine flu pandemic. So there, in that book, you made a claim that I think is of enormous importance in trying to understand our present pandemic. We are all living in. There are actually a ton of important things that you wrote in that book for me, uh, as a layperson, of, uh, as a philosopher who read first a uh, first book in, in epidemics. So there are a ton of important things, but I think it's good to start with this one. And so you wrote that every epidemic, and also every pandemic, um, plays itself out on three different levels, or that it should be viewed from three different perspectives. First of all, there is the physical event, then there is the social event, the social crisis related to the physical event, and finally, there is what I think is very important, the narrative attached to it. I think I understand what you mean by this, but could you maybe explain this diversification a bit more for our listeners? I'd be happy to. Two things are really shocking about this coronavirus pandemic that we're all living through. We should remind, we should tell the listeners, if they, in case they don't know, a pandemic just means an epidemic that is affecting many parts of the world uh, at the same time. The, the first really remarkable aspect of the coronavirus pandemic is that it is the first one in which, the first uh, e epidemic in which the narrative, the story of what's happening is, is being written as the outbreak unfolds. Usually it takes some time. There are competing versions uh, of, of what, uh, descriptions of what's happening. As I said in the book, there's, there are scientists saying, well, there's a, there's a virus or a bacterium and it's doing this. There are social commentators who are playing on fears, on, on pre-existing fears and anxieties. There are political actors here, because we live in a world in which information is transmitted essentially to everybody in the world instantaneously and, and unceasingly, because we're bathed in an ocean of information constantly, the information about the coronavirus outbreak moves faster than any thought could possibly happen. And that means that 
we're all hearing or, or more like seeing on, on our screens uh, all kinds of information all at the same time. So it's at once chaotic and also terrifying. So then, so the the new thing, thing thing one about this outbreak, is this simultaneous creation of narrative. That's never happened before, because we haven't had this instantaneous communication uh, in the it, throughout the world that we have now. The second thing is particularly in more so in some countries than others, but in many parts of the world, it turns out that there's all, there's essentially no public health response. The, the reason that so many countries have had to lock down, have had to practice so-called social distancing is that the customary public health responses have either failed or have been absent. Mm. And that also puts us in a new situation. So, so in answer, so this is a way to think about this outbreak is that we're going through something completely new. Mm. And the those so it, to come back to your question about the th about the three versions of the story of any epidemic what we're seeing is they're all smushed together here mm. they're all happening at once if 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 i can continue on 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 the just a little bit on on the narrative in the book you say that the the main means through which epidemics or pandemics were interpreted or seen in the past decades is what you call a postmodern germ theory um a slightly revised general germ germ theory if you can say but i presume now considering that things are new that right this I, has evolved a little bit sorry no no please okay um yeah, what I was referring to um, with this sort of catchy adjective postmodern was that what I saw in the first years of the 21st century, so the book came out in 2009. So I, at that point, writing out the, uh, the epidemics, so-called, that were really popular in the early 2000s. And in particular, I was interested in the obesity epidemic, uh, the autism epidemic. Mm. I, I could add the epidemic of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder that um, we were seeing, I noticed, epidemics that had nothing to do with infectious disease and that were, to come back to your question about narratives, constructed in a, in a way that was kind of inside out. And this is what I mean. Mm -hmm. In the old days, the, the old days always means, you know, before I was born. Um, so in the old days, there were warnings about what might happen to, what, what kind of infection you might get if you didn't act right. Mm -hmm. So in the 1920s and 30s, people were warned, or men were warned if they went to a prostitute, they could get syphilis. Um, 
women were certainly warned even much, much more so about sexual impropriety in regard to you know, the, the possibility of contracting sexually transmissible diseases. In fact, they were, you know, to make sure that women got the point, they were typically called venereal diseases, as if they came from women. <laughs> so the, so the, um, the old-fashioned epidemic, if you will, was that the social anxieties framed statements about risk. Um, what, what I meant, but what seemed to me to be happening in the early 2000s was that uh, in, in meanings were imposed socially. So autistic children, children with, with uh, attention deficit disorder, children especially, but anybody with these, who is obese was subject to a social kind of scrutiny. There's something wrong with them. These things that had once just been part of normal life, there are some kids who are more ambunctious, act out more than others. Um, there are some people who are skinny and there's some people who are heavy that had, had become diseases those diseases were layered with social meaning. And then the, the state of risk was imposed. You tracked obesity as if it were a kind of germ if you don't exercise enough, if you don't eat properly. So that's what I meant by, by postmodern. I meant that inversion, treating what were formerly um, just social phenomena as diseases, layering them with meaning, and then imputing some kind of germ-like causation. If you do this, you, you could get that. Mm. Just like in the old days, you know, if you go to a prostitute, you could get syphilis. Mm. That, so that's what I meant by postmodern. Um, should I keep going or do you want to ask something? No, no, you can go, go, go on, go on. So what I see happening today, and I, I, when I was writing Dread, that's as far as we'd gotten, right? Mm -hmm. Some, it, that's a little over 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. It's startling how fast we've gone, the world has gone past even that mm -hmm. uh, approach to illness. Mm -hmm. So... What we have today, what we're all looking at, and it's in the news all, every day, um, is there's a real germ. There's a, a virus, coronavirus. Mm -hmm. um, but, but, it, but because of this phenomenon that I mentioned before, that all of the stories are being told simultaneously. There's this uh, cacophony, like... The, 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 all of the instruments are playing at once mm. uh, and it's impossible to make sense of it. Mm. No thought can, uh, can move fast enough and, or encompass so many different narratives so effectively enough to make sense of what's happening. Mm. And, be, and, and therefore, what I, I so two, therefore two things are happening. One is a lot of people are dying, 
because we we aren't many countries i many countries are not mount including mine are not mounting have not been mounting an appropriate public health response in my country we're in month 4 of coronavirus outbreak and we're just starting to do the routine public health to carry out the routine public health measures mm. which are testing contact tracing that is when someone turns out to be infected you ask that person who have you been in touch with mm. and then go and test those people so you find all the infections mm. it's just starting to happen now in mm. may although coronavirus has been in the United States since January. Mm. So, and we're not alone. Um, some European countries are doing much better. Uh, Germany, I know, has been doing much better with testing. Mm. But not, but much of the world is not. So, the, so the, this, we're seeing lots of people die because the authorities have failed. But the other thing we're seeing is this, this scramble, this frenzy to attach meaning to this outbreak. And naturally, that means it's taken advantage of by, um, for, for political reasons. Mm -hmm. it, I think that even, even though things have changed, I do think that there are three particular, uh, three particular problematics that you already mentioned in, in your book. Uh, that was related to the 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 the, the postmodern germ theory. I think they are still valid, though. But maybe you can you, you can contradict me if 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 they're not. But let me just point them out here. So three problematics that you mentioned. They are first of all um, the loss of nuance that is caused uh, by by a, a one fits all solution, as if one just wants to hold on one narrative. So that would be a first, so this lack of nuance that one sees, and I think one sees it today as well. The second uh, term within uh, problematic that, that you mentioned with the germ theory, but I think that is still valid today, would, would be that we are too much indebted to the future predicting mathematical models. Again, I, I still see this very much to be a problematic. And then a, a third aspect uh, or a third problem would be the the role that the health officials play in all this and you you call them wizards I, in, in a previous podcast I, I call them prophets but i think this is very very problematic so these would be three problematics that you already mentioned for the previous uh, narrative but which i think is still very much uh, operative today yes uh, i i agree with you the let me let me start with the wizards or prophets. Yes. We 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 still they're still on television. Indeed. Um, they're and in some way this is probably unavoidable. In a in a situation like as like this one where it's so hard for people to know what's uh, what what's happening to us? Mm. Inevitably, there's a search. I, I I talked about the search for meaning a moment ago, but mm -hmm. there's also a desire for someone who can deliver the truth. And um, so we have lots of people who are in fact knowledgeable about something, um, viruses, 
epidemiology, or as you mentioned, mathematical models who have, who, who are seen as, who are easy to experts. They have something to say. And I'm sure that, I'm sure that's reassuring. I'm not troubled in this case about health officials being in too much control. On the contrary, what worries me is that they aren't, that, that as I said, the public health measures are not being put, in, put into place. So on the one hand, the, the news shows are asking uh, health officials to comment. On the other hand, they're not necessarily uh, asking for more public health. And the and and the mathematical modeling, I, I'm not sure what to make of that. There are always mathematical modelers nowadays. Uh, forecasts. Perhaps this comes from the extreme interest in financial markets and predicting what's going to happen with financial markets so that people who invest money in hopes of making more money can invest, as they say, wisely. Um, I, I'm not sure what the fascination is. Mathematical models are always wrong <laughs> uh, because, I, because I studied epidemiology. I learned creating, the, creating mathematical models. I did some of it myself. Um, but my, one of my professors said, uh, models are always wrong, but a good model can help you ask the right questions. Mm. And, and that's, I wish that when the mathematical modelers come and say, well, this many thousands of people are going to die, or the outbreak is going to take this pattern in the future, a future which they can't possibly know, mm. that we would hear that as a set of questions rather than a crystal ball about what's actually going to happen in the future. Yeah, they should have listened to your professor. In, in, <laughs> yes, I... <laughs> it, it seems that they have turned everything upside down. They don't think that mathematical models are always wrong, but they are good means to ask questions. They think that they're always right, so let's not ask any questions. Anyway. I, I noticed that also, that uh, that especially in the context of this outbreak, that the mathematical models seem to get so much attention. Mm. And I'm not sure what to make of that, except to come back to that, that search for meaning, search for truth, that nobody knows what to think. Mm. And look, it's there in numbers and you know, pretty graphs. So, well, maybe, that, maybe that's correct. Maybe that's the truth. <laughs> the, the, the pretty numbers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There are two topics, topics that, that have surfaced and resurfaced in, in the various podcasts here on, that we have done on PICT. And the interesting part is that we have done them with scholars from a wide variety of fields. And these two topics, they always seem to come back. And, and so I was very surprised, presently surprised, obviously, to find them also in a book by an epidemiologist. 
And these two things are, on the one hand, the power of the declaration, the power of language, and on the other hand, the power of the exception. Uh, you claimed in, in your book that keeping a disease exceptional was highly prolific, and, and I know you were obviously being ironic or even cynical here, but still, there is something in keeping something exceptional. And then on the other hand of, of the declaration, you, all, you also wrote that there is something very powerful in declaring something an epidemic or in declaring something a pandemic today. Could you elaborate on, on these two concepts, on the importance of declaration and on the importance of exception, please? Yes, I, so declaration is all important. An epidemic is nothing but an attachment of meaning. Now, I'm not uh, skeptical about the existence of coronavirus. I know that the virus exists and people who get infected are dying from it. Mm -hmm. So I want to make clear yeah, that, that's important. Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that um, I'm not hallucinating, <laughs> but the, but, but it's worth asking what, when do we consider something to be an epidemic, a, a disease outbreak to be an epidemic and when not. And this comes back to my point about, you know, in what sense is obesity an epidemic? Um, in, in the world today, 1,300-something thousand people die in uh, vehicle accidents, car crashes every year worldwide. Mm. One, in a, one in a third million mm. every year, probably getting worse. A million die of tuberculosis. Mm. We don't talk about those as epidemics. Mm. We don't. You don't hear people talking about the global epidemic of car crashes. Mm. So, that, so what makes so what makes something an epidemic is that there's not just that there's a declaration by authorities in the sense that well war has been declared, mm. but rather that there's a general there's an agreement in the culture that this phenomenon will be seen as crucial and worth recognizing. Mm. And I, I think we're seeing that happen with coronavirus this year, mm. that this thing um, is, this, this may or may not kill as many people globally as the automobiles and, and trucks do, but it has already been distinguished as an epidemic. And that, and therefore, my point is that the epidemic is essentially always a social and political phenomenon. Mm. So the the exception part is trickier. <laughs> um, the there's value in a disease being exceptional, and value in both positively and negatively mm. when. Uh, in the 1990s, AIDS was much a, a much more important cause of death than it is now. It was only just beginning to be controllable with um, with medication. Mm -hmm. There was a great deal of funding for research on AIDS, more so than for diseases that actually killed more people, mm -hmm. like certain cancers. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Now that's not true anymore, but that that was a that was a result of the exceptional status of AIDS in the culture at that time. So exception can be a, can be a good thing. It can also be a politically useful thing. That is the the way that we in the wealthy world see our health as exceptionally important allows us to make sure that we have access to certain medications and not take the same go to the same um, the not take the same pains to make sure that those medications are equally available to people in the poor impoverished world which is that's for instance why tuberculosis a completely treatable disease continues to kill a million people a year mm. um diarrheal diseases caught kill one and a half million people a year mostly children all of almost all of them in poor countries so that that too is an is a that's one of the negative consequences of the exceptionality of health in the wealthy world. To conclude, maybe a, a more positive note. And in, in a previous talk, I, uh, I asked the speaker if he could say something about the future, not predicting the future, as that would be making the same mistake as we have just declared you're not <laughs> yes. to make, but maybe say something about the future in, in, in the sense that we know or we have to realize that the future is uncertain and will always be uncertain, but maybe it would be good to not be so problematic about it and not try and get it under control with our incredibly fallacious theory of risk calculation and risk curtailing. Maybe could you say something about that? Yes, thank you for point for, for bringing that up. Uh, it, the, the future is unknowable. And that's why they call it the future. Exactly. We can know about the past, but we can't know the future. So when, when someone, a mathematical modeler, a scientific expert, politician, says that he or she knows what's going to happen next, we have to close our ears. Uh, that be, because all too often, those forecasts are used for political purposes. They're, they're meant to get people to agree to more surveillance or more control and um, unnecessarily, usually unnecessarily. Mm. And here I see, here we can see that again because with coronavirus, everything happens so fast. We see that happening already. Mm. I'm not taking issue with the social distancing orders. I I think it's different in each place. I think in many places that was a reasonable response to hospitals being overwhelmed mm. with coronavirus cases. However, the, I, the, the fear that this, these kinds of power structures could become permanent seems like a legitimate one. And mm-hmm. that's why it's important to remember that nobody actually knows what the future is going to bring. Thank you very much, uh, Philippe Alcabez, for these highly enlightening comments. 
and for stressing the importance of narrative. Narrative is very important, but it can also become all too important and put in danger our social lives. So thank you for being with us, Philip. Thank it's been a pleasure. Thank you for being with Picked Voices and thank you everybody for listening and we hope you will come back to us soon. Thank you.